Welcome to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. For more information about Movement Church, including attending a worship experience, getting connected, or to give online, please visit movementcolumbus.com. Well, good morning. Like Sarah said, my name is Sarah, um, and I have the opportunity to share with you this morning. Um, I help to run our movement groups here at Movement Church, so if we haven't met before, now you know that that's what I do here. Um, I'm also a teacher at Worthington Christian High School. I uh, get to teach the Gospels in the Book of Acts to 10th graders and that all starts tomorrow, which I'm excited, but to be honest, also pretty sad about that summer is done. And those of you who don't get a summer break, you don't feel bad for me at all, so whatever, it's fine. Um, but I'm excited this morning that we're going to kick off this series on Hosea. And like you saw in the video, we're calling this a story of unconditional love. And so my job this morning is to help kind of set the whole book up. I'm going to give you some background. Some of you probably know about Hosea, you know, who he was and what he did. Some of you maybe aren't so sure. So I'm going to lay that out for you. But as I was thinking about, okay, before we get into kind of the nitty gritty, the background of who he was and why he wrote his book, this whole idea of unconditional love is something that in our culture, in our time, uh, is not something that is maybe so popular. The idea of unconditional love. We don't love people unconditionally. We love people for as long as they can do good things for us. And I am no exception to that, right? I think about the relationships that have come and gone in my life and even people that I continue to be friends with that there are these moments where I'm like, oh my gosh, I could wring your neck, right? I don't really love you right now. I want to punch you. But then I was thinking, who are the people in my life that it would not matter what they did. I am always going to love them unconditionally. And as I've gotten older, I've come to realize that those, most of those people are in my family um, now, some of you are like, you've never met my family. I do not love them unconditionally. Okay, we can talk afterwards about that, right? But I think most of us would say the people in our family, those are people that we, good, bad, or ugly, they're ours to love forever. And in particular, in my family, I'm the oldest of four kids. Um, two of my siblings uh, both got married about a year ago, and my brother, he and his wife had a little girl um, right at the beginning of this summer. She is my first niece, and I am going to show you pictures of her because I can, because I'm up here. So this is my niece, Ava, um, and I think she's the most wonderful thing that has ever existed in all of time. So if you have children, you probably disagree, and you think that your kids are better. Sorry, we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one, because I just, like, look at that face. I like the next one, too. We went to the beach this summer. I mean, look at her. She had all these, her, my sister-in-law bought a bunch of different like um, little bathing suits for her and they all have tutus on. I, uh, seriously, okay. So when usually, my family lives in Pennsylvania and when I say goodbye to my family to come back to Columbus, it's usually no big deal. I'm just like, see you guys later. When I said goodbye now that Ava is here, I like wept, okay? Like the whole way back to Ohio, I'm like, why do I live in Columbus? I wish I lived near my niece. It will not matter what this little girl does. As she's pretty small right now. You know, she's like 10 weeks old. But throughout her life, it's not going to matter what she does. I know it already. And if, you're, if you have small children in your life, if you're a parent or you have nieces and nephews, I'm guessing you know that feeling. It doesn't matter what they do. Now, there may be some times where you're like, I just need a break from you and your insanity. But you're always going to love them. 
And hopefully you experienced that from your parents. I can say that I experienced that with my parents, that I had some pretty crappy days and I treated them pretty poorly. And yet my parents always loved me, always. They disciplined me sometimes, but they have always loved me. And so I I just wanted to put that kind of picture in front of us as we start to get into this idea of a story of unconditional love. And maybe you have heard, um, if you've been around the church at all, or if you've spent some time reading the Bible, maybe you have heard the analogy that the way that God loves us is the way that a husband loves his bride. In fact, the church in the New Testament is called the bride of Christ. And so the idea there is that it's supposed to be this sort of unconditional love, that a marriage bond is supposed to be this unconditional covenant, that good, bad, or ugly, we're in this together. That the way that I feel about Ava is the way that husbands and wives should feel about each other and the way that God feels about his people. And yet we know, because we live in a broken world, that that's not always how marriages go. And if you've spent any time in a relationship with God, you know that that's not always how our relationship with God goes either. That even though he is so faithful to us, sometimes we're not so faithful to him. So this is kind of the world that we're in as we step into the book of Hosea. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can. Um, Hosea is a really small book that's in the back of the Old Testament. If you're using one of the Bibles that's underneath your chair, it's page 679. Hosea is one of the minor prophets. That doesn't mean that he's less important. It just means that his book is smaller. Um, There's a bunch of prophetic books right at the end of the Old Testament. 679, if you're looking for it in the, the Bible that's underneath your chair. Let me tell you a little bit about what's going on in the nation of Israel when Hosea enters the scene. So uh, Israel was a nation, God's chosen people. They were chosen simply because God wanted to choose them to be the people that he communicated his truth and his love to the world through. As good as God was to Israel, they were kind of a disaster. And so if you were here this summer, you walked with us through the book of Exodus and you've seen some of that merry-go-round behavior, right? Where they would be awesome one moment and then a total disaster the next moment, back and forth and back and forth. And so at this point in Israel's history, um, Israel has been divided into two nations. Israel started as 12 tribes. And at this point, there are 10 tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. The northern tribes are called Israel. The southern tribes are called Judah. And both of these countries have their own set of issues. But at the heart of what's going on, they have really bad leadership. Their kings are a disaster. So Hosea was written sometime in the 8th century B.C., We don't have the dates nailed down exactly, but it's sometime between like 750 and 680 BC that the book of Hosea is written. And this is happening right before Israel is going to get taken into captivity. So Israel has been so disobedient, has rebelled against the Lord so often over and over and over again that God finally says, fine, you're going into captivity. I will let your captors teach you the lesson that you were unwilling to learn from me. Now, Hosea is writing, writing kind of that period right before that, leading up to that. And so in the 30 years that are leading up to Israel's captivity, they had six different kings. Six kings in 30 years is a lot. 
Now, we have, you know, a new president every four or eight years, so maybe that doesn't sound like so much to us, but these people were supposed to, like, rule until they died, and then their son is supposed to take over. There was all kinds of turmoil happening, people killing each other every six months. One king only reigned for two months, and then someone came and killed him and took over. They're paying off the Assyrian rulers so that they can um, continue to have their own country, which God is not pumped about, obviously. Assyria is taking over the known world, and they are a terrible group of people. Uh, The kind of people who they roll into a new country, and they take the babies, and they crush their heads against the rocks, and they're sacrificing children to their gods. Terrible people. And so Israel is trying to appease them, and over the course of these 30 years, they have six different kings. Assyria actually invades their land six different times, and Israel is not interested in responding to what God, their God, is telling them. Now, remember, if you weren't here this summer, and if you're rusty on the book of Exodus, their God, Yahweh, took them out of the nation of Egypt, right? Like, they were enslaved for 400 years. He takes them out of the nation of Egypt, and he does that through 10 plagues, which are pretty miraculous in and of themselves. Then they cross the Red Sea because he divides it and they walk across on dry ground and then he makes the sea collapse on all of the Egyptians and he kills them. Then he takes them into the desert. They walk around for 40 years. Their shoes never wear out. They always have food because he makes it fall from heaven and land on the ground every day. Like, I hate grocery shopping. How awesome that would have been, right? You just walk outside and there it is. God provided for them the whole way through. This is their God. And then through the next hundreds of years, he provides for them. He gives them a king. He gives them a good king in David. He allows them to prosper. He allows them to take possession of the land that he promised them. And yet the people of Israel have forgotten that God is so good. And so when we get to Hosea's time, many people in Israel are worshiping Baal. Maybe you've heard of him. He is a pagan god, an idol that was worshipped during this time. He's a god of the Assyrians, their enemies. He's the god of fertility and agriculture. So part of what it meant to worship Baal, when you would go to Baal's temple, they had temple prostitutes because it was considered um, an act of worship and a way to get Baal's attention and favor. If you solicited one of these temple prostitutes and engaged in sexual behavior in the temple, because then Baal would look at that as the god of fertility and the god of agriculture and would pour out blessings on you. This is what our people Israel are doing right now. And so this is the scene that Hosea steps into. Hosea is a prophet, which means that he has been chosen by God to bring the message of God to the people. Now, it probably goes without saying the prophets were not people's, like, best friends, because they're usually saying, like, you guys are stupid and you need to stop doing what you're doing. Hosea is given a really unique task as he comes to the people of Israel. His job is simply, it's not really any different than any other prophet. His job is simply to turn their hearts and their attention back to Yahweh. To remind them that they had made a sacred covenant with Yahweh. That they were to be his and no one else's. That they were to be united to him and not to Baal and not to be following what the Assyrians were doing, but simply united to Yahweh in a sacred covenant that is much like a marriage. 
Now, again, when we, when we say marriage, we're talking about the kind of marriage that God has described for us in Scripture, which is not the way that our culture looks at marriage. And so as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about an interview that I saw um, on Ellen. Judge me if you want. I think she's hysterical. Uh, this was a few years ago, and she did an interview with Nene Lakes. Um, Nene is... you. If you were judging me for that, it's just going to get worse. She was a um, on The Real Housewives of Atlanta, and then she was on Celebrity Apprentice. Um, and Nini was married for, I think, like 10 years or something, 10 or, 10 or 12 years. And then she got divorced in like 2000 or 2001. And then in 2011, she got remarried to her original husband. So they were married and then divorced, and then they got remarried. Um, but when they get remarried, this is what she's talking about as she's talking to Ellen. I'm just going to show you a portion of the clip. She's talking about their wedding. Don't be distracted by her 26 carat diamond ring that she's wearing. Try to actually listen to what she's saying. It really is 26 carats. Okay, ha, 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 right? Um, So she, and when you watch the beginning of the interview, Ellen asks her, like, why did you guys get divorced the first time? And she said, well, you know, like, I just, I really believe that I need to, like, stick up for my, my own good and for my rights, and he wasn't giving me all his money. And so I just decided I didn't want to be married to him anymore. And I thought, it's kind of a weird thing. And then you hear her describe this covenant of marriage that she's entering into with this guy that will only last as long as he doesn't ever get poor or get sick or life doesn't get bad for them. This is it. This is, this is the sacred covenant of marriage that she's entered into. It's a joke. It's a joke. Now, and I don't want to make light of her, right? Like the Lord loves her just like the Lord loves us. She needs Jesus and his grace just as much as I do. But this is such a clear picture, I think, of the way that when many of us think about love or, or maybe the, or marriage or a commitment, it's a commitment as long as it's convenient. And then, well, I got other things. Other things to think about, other things to give my time to. Something better has come along. This is how Israel thought about their relationship with the Lord. And so the Lord comes to Hosea and he says, I have a message that I need you to give to my people. And what he asks Hosea to do is pretty remarkable. We're going to read a few verses and then we're going to talk about it. We're going to read a few verses and then we're going to talk about it. But let me give you the big idea for this morning. The big idea for this morning is whether I'm at my best or at my worst, God's goodness never changes. Whether I'm at my best or at my worst, God's goodness never changes. We're going to see that that's his attitude towards the people of Israel in the book of Hosea. So we're going to start right at the beginning, Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. And we're actually going to read the whole first chapter. It's only 11 verses. Um, And then we will 
We'll talk about it a little bit here. Hosea 1 verse 1, the Lord gave this message to Hosea son of Beeri during the years when Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were the kings of Judah, and Jeroboam son of Jehoash was king of Israel. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, go and marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. So Hosea married Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. And the Lord said, name the child Jezreel, for I'm about to punish the king, I'm about to punish King Jehu's dynasty to avenge the murders he committed at Jezreel. In fact, I will bring an end to Israel's independence. I will break its military power in the Jezreel Valley. Soon Gomer became pregnant again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, name your daughter Lo Ruhamah, not loved. For I will no longer show love to the people of Israel or forgive them. But I will show love to the people of Judah. I will free them from their enemies, not with weapons or armies or horses or charioteers, but by my power as the Lord their God. After Gomer had weaned Lo Ruhamah, she again became pregnant and gave birth to a second son. And the Lord said, name him Lo Ami, not my people. For Israel is not my people and I am not their God. Yet the time will come when Israel's people will be like the sands of the seashore, too many to count. Then at the place where they were told, you are not my people, it will be said, you are the children of the living God. Then the people of Judah and Israel will unite together. They will choose one leader for themselves and they will return from exile together. What a day that will be, the day of Jezreel, when God will again plant his people in his land. Uh, and then verse 1 of chapter 2 kind of goes along with that. In that day, you will call your brothers Ami, my people, and you will call your sisters Ruhama, the ones I love. Things are not starting out so well uh, for the people of Israel, the words that God has to say to the people of Israel. But before we get there, let's just talk about whatever, what most people know about the book of Hosea is God told him to marry a prostitute. Now, this is not like some sort of like, play on words. It's not some sort of grand analogy. He just really told Hosea to marry a prostitute named Gomer, which is like insult to injury, right? Like her name is Gomer. Hosea married a prostitute named Gomer. And God says to Hosea, I want you to do this because you will be a picture to my people of the way that I love them, even though they are not faithful to me. We don't have recorded what sort of things Hosea said in response to the Lord or what sort of kind of battle he had or if he talked to any of his friends like, hey, has God ever told you to do something like this? Because this is a weird thing, right? Like this is not a normal command. This isn't something that we see just like written other places. God's just commanding people to marry prostitutes. The way that God used his, um, his prophets was to deliver unique messages. And so sometimes we see the things that he calls them to do are kind of strange. Prophets walking around naked for certain periods of time and all kinds of... I mean, you should read it. The Old Testament's good. So the command that God gives Hosea is Mary Gomer. Mary Gomer, to show my people the way that I love them even, even though they are not faithful to me. And then he tags onto that, she will have children in prostitution. So what you need to understand about these three children that are mentioned to us in chapter one, the first child, it actually says, was born to Hosea, implying to us that Hosea was that child's father, the one named Jezreel. Now that name probably doesn't mean anything to many of us, 
But when you study Israel's history, what you find, and it's described a little bit in that verse, is that the Valley of Jezreel was the place where many murders had taken place. In fact, murders by kings who were worshiping Baal, Jewish kings who were worshiping Baal, and they were killing people who worshiped Yahweh. So Jezreel wasn't this like, oh, Jezreel, what a nice place. It's like Disneyland. No, Jezreel was like awful. It was a terrible place. And for anyone who actually worshiped Yahweh, it was connected to lots of terrible memories, uh, lots of terrible acts that had taken place. It, it would be like, like a Jewish person naming their child after the names of one of the concentration camps from the Holocaust. No one would do that. Why would you want every time you say your child's name to bring your mind back to the atrocities that happened in that place? That's Jezreel. Talk about a rough name. But then it gets worse, okay, because the next two children, Scripture doesn't say that Gomer bore them to Hosea. They're not Hosea's kids. She has a little girl and a little boy, but what we are intended to understand is that we don't know who their dads are. And their names are Loruhama, which means not loved, and Loami, not my people. Now, I thought Jezreel was bad, but these are like the worst names you can imagine, right? Like some of you are about to have children. I do not suggest naming them not loved, right? Like they're running around and you're like, oh, there's my kid. I don't love him. Like that's what we call him. I don't love you. Like talk about that kid needs therapy when he grows up, right? I mean, you are not loved and you are not my people, not my child. This is the world that Hosea is living in. Again, this is, it's not just some cute word play. This is actually the life that Hosea is living. He is married to a woman who continues to leave him to sleep with other men. He has three children in his home, only one of which belongs to him. The other two are children of prostitution. And God has called him to be faithful to Gomer because he is faithful to his people. Now, if you take a step back and you look at chapter one, it seems like God has some pretty harsh things to say. I mean, he's saying, I want you to name these children not loved and not my people because that's how I feel about the nation of Israel. The problem with that is if you keep reading, you're going to see that that's not actually where God intends to stay. And I think the intention here and the reason that Hosea sets us up this way is because he wants to remind us of something that's very important. God chooses his people, God chooses to love us because he is good, not because we are. God chooses us because he is good, not because we are. I was telling a few of our volunteers this morning that that idea this week has really been rocking me. And and I know if you've been around the church or the Lord for a while, that's not rocket science to you. You know that we can't earn God's favor, And yet, if I'm being honest with you, I tend to fall into that a lot. Because that's how I treat my relationships with other people. I think I have to earn your affection. I have to do something to make you care for me. I have to to put enough money in the bank that kind of solidifies and guarantees the fact that we're going to, you're going to be my friend and we're going to take care of each other. It's a transaction. Far too often, that's how I think about my relationship with people, which immediately translates into that's then how I think about my relationship with God. That I have to do something to earn his favor. 
And so when my days are really good, God must love me a lot. And when my days are terrible, he probably doesn't really want to be around me. And if you're being honest, I'm guessing that you've probably had some sort of relationship that has felt that way. That when you're, when you're doing all the right things, when you're hitting on all cylinders, there are people who, yeah, they want to be around you. They want to spend time with you. But on your days when everything is falling apart, I'm guessing that at least some of those people probably don't want to be too close. Oh, you're having a bad day? You can call somebody else. Thank you very much. Don't bring your downer attitude. Don't bring your failures into this room because I don't really have time to deal with them. And so I think that that's how God feels about me. I mean, I'm being honest with you. I, I think that on the days when I'm a screw up that God looks at me and he goes, not today, Sarah. I've got other people to deal with. You are really disappointing me. So not today. But what is so beautiful, even, even in like kind of the grittiness of Hosea chapter one, is that we see God is saying, Gomer is a picture of my people. But, but even that last verse there, chapter two, verse one, he's promising that a day is coming when I'm gonna bring him back. It's like, spoiler alert for the rest of the book, okay? Like this is where we're headed A day is coming when they will be my people again. No matter how broken they are, no matter how much they have done wrong, no matter how many times they have failed me, no matter how many children they have had in prostitution, I will bring them back and I will make them my people. God loves you and God is good to you simply because that's who he is, not because of anything that you've done. This is, this is the way that the book is set, okay? This is what he wants us to know out of the gate. God chooses us because he's good, not because we are. Now, this is going to take us into chapter two. So what's coming next? What then does he have to say to the people? We'll start in verse two, which is right at the top of the column if you're reading in this Bible. Uh, but now bring your charges against Israel, your mother, she, for she is no longer my wife and I am no longer her husband. Tell her to remove the prostitute's makeup from her face and the clothing that exposes her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her as naked as she was on the day she was born. I will leave her to die of thirst as in a dry and barren wilderness. And I will not love her children for they were conceived in prostitution. Their mother is a shameless prostitute and became pregnant in a shameful way. She said, I'll run after other lovers and sell myself to them for food and water, for clothing of wool and linen, and for olive oil and drinks." Okay, so again, beginning of chapter two is not sounding so awesome. Like it's sounding like God has some harsh things to say. But in verse six, we see the tone start to change. For this reason, I will fence her in with thorn bushes. I will block her path with a wall to make her lose her way. Now, maybe that verse in isolation doesn't sound like something that's good. If you've ever been trapped somewhere by thorn bushes and then you have to climb through them, you know, that's kind of a painful thing. I got trapped against a thorn bush by a bulldog when I was little, which is maybe why I don't like dogs that much. But um, if that's how you think of this verse, maybe it doesn't seem like such a good and gracious thing. But when you understand what God is saying, he says, for this reason. For what reason? Well, the first few verses in chapter two. Because she keeps leaving him, because she keeps going into prostitution, because she keeps taking the good things that God has given her and throwing them out amongst all of these other people. God says, I'm going to cause you to stop doing that. I'm going to make it impossible for you to chase your sin. I'm going to hem you in 
so that you can't find those men no matter how hard you look. We'll keep going. Verse 7. When she runs after her lovers, she won't be able to catch them. She will search for them but not find them. Then she will think, I might as well return to my husband for I was better off with him than I am now. Doesn't that sound like a loving thing to say, right? She doesn't realize that it was I who gave her everything that she has, the grain, the new wine, the olive oil. I even gave her silver and gold, but she gave all my gifts to Baal. The fact that in that verse, in verse 7, we see that the heart and the attitude of Gomer, which again is the heart and the attitude of the people of Israel, and I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say is the heart and the attitude of us, Even as God is trying to do something to draw her back to him, she's not pumped about returning to the Lord. She's not pumped about going back to her husband. She says, I guess I'll go back to my husband because, you know, it's better with him than it is here all by myself. Oh, great. Welcome home, honey. Thank you for your repentant heart and your willingness to try to make this work. She's not going back because she loves him. She's going back because at least she can get something better from him than she can on her own. And yet, this is where God starts with his people. His people who are running away from him. He says, I'm going to create a barrier so that you can't get to that sin anymore. And even though their attitude is garbage, God doesn't turn them away. God doesn't say, well, if you're not going to be grateful, then get out. God hems them in and draws them back to himself. Verse 9, but now I will take back the ripened grain and the new wine I generously provided each harvest season. I will take away the wool and the linen clothing I gave to cover her nakedness. I will strip her naked in public while all her lovers look on. No one will be able to rescue her from my hands. I will put an end to her annual festivals, her new moon celebrations, and her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will destroy her grapevines and her fig trees Things she claims her lovers gave her. I will let them grow into tangled thickets where only wild animals will eat the fruit. I will punish her for all those times when she burned incense to her images of Baal. When she put on her earrings and jewels and went out to look for her lovers, but forgot all about me, says the Lord. You can see that what he's saying about his people in these few verses is all of the good things that he's given to her. He's going to remove. He's going to take them away. This is not to say that um, every time you go through a season in your life where it feels like nothing is going right, um, which I'm guessing we've probably all had at least a season or two like that, like anything good that I had is just kind of like slipping through my fingers. I was supposed to get the promotion and I didn't. Uh, I thought that this relationship was going to work out and it didn't. I thought we were going to have a baby this time and we didn't. The, the difficult things that we go through. This is not to say that every time we do that, it's because the Lord is trying to somehow uh, correct us or discipline us or, or get our attention. Not every time. But sometimes. Sometimes the reason that everything that you pursue feels frustrated every blessing that you feel like you deserve and you don't get, sometimes the reason that that takes place is because the Lord is trying to say, hey, it's not about those things. Hey, don't you remember where those things come from? 
Don't you remember why you get any of those things in the first place? It's not because you're so good. It's because I gave them to you. And sometimes in my own stubbornness, the Lord does this to me. Because even though I know the truth, I don't really live like I know the truth. And so sometimes the Lord has to be really firm with me. And I think if you're parents, you probably know that you've had to do that maybe with some of your children or all of your children, at least once or twice, that you say, no, no, I don't, I don't want you to do that. No, I do not want you to hit your sister on the head with that hammer. I don't want you to do that. There was one boy in our house growing up, so those are the kind of things that happened. Stop hitting your sister. Stop punching your sister. Stop pushing her across the room. No, I don't want you to do that. No, listen to me. No. And then at some point you have to say, fine, you're going to keep doing that, then I'm going to take something away from you. You can't be on your cell phone. You can't play this video game. You have to go and sit in the corner in a timeout. I take those good things away from you. Why? Because I want you to learn a lesson. Because I want you to understand something. Because I want you to understand that I love you and I know what is best for you. And when you choose not to listen to me, I'll do whatever is necessary to get your attention. Many of you in this room, if I asked you, do you believe that God knows what's best for you? You would say, yeah, absolutely. I believe God knows what's best. I mean, he knows everything, right? Do you believe that God loves you and he wants what's best for you? You would say, yes, I do. I believe that. But many of us don't actually live that way. Oftentimes, I don't live that way. I believe that God is good, but I don't always believe that he wants to be good to me. I believe that God wants to give blessings, but I don't always believe that God wants to give blessings to me. I believe that what he says is true, but I don't always believe that it's true for me. It's easy for me to separate myself from the things that are true. And so then I can excuse my behavior. I can excuse my attitude. I can excuse the way that I think and the way that I think. Well, everyone should feel sorry for me because I should have these things. If God really cared about me, he would give me these things and he doesn't. So your lives are good and mine is bad. That's why I act the way that I do. And Your issues are not the same as my issues, but I'm guessing that most of us have probably dealt with that. You, many of you wouldn't say, I disbelieve God's word. And yet when it comes down to it, you don't really believe that what God is doing in your life, what he is doing in the lives of those around you, that it's actually for your good. You don't believe that. You believe that somehow God has forgotten about you. Somehow, something that you've done has made him so frustrated that he's just said, whatever, you figure it out on your own because I'm not helping you anymore. That is not the way that God treats his people. God disciplines us because he's good. He disciplines us because he's good and because he wants us to experience that goodness. It doesn't always feel that way. And if you can remember being disciplined as a child, or if you as a parent discipline your kids, you know that that's true. The discipline doesn't always feel like someone's looking out for your best. 
I thought that my parents hated me when I was a freshman in high school. I really did. Like, I thought that they hated me and we would never speak to each other ever again. I made some very poor decisions, and they let me know. Um, But they did that because they love me, because they're good. So what we see here in Hosea chapter 2 The way that God is talking about the people of Israel, he's saying, I'm going to take their blessings away from them because I'm so angry. No, because I'm trying to get their attention because I want them to wake up and say, oh, the only reason I had this was because of the Lord. None of this good stuff is good anyways if I don't have him. All the things that I want and that my heart longs for, those things don't matter apart from the Lord. That's what God is trying to communicate to the people of of Israel in this, this chapter of Hosea. He disciplines us because he is good and he wants us to experience that goodness. Now, we're gonna finish Hosea chapter two. And this is where things start to turn a corner. So if you felt like, man, I wish I hadn't come to church today because this is kind of heavy. Um, we're gonna finish here in chapter two and... We're going to see, again, this is kind of, uh, Hosea chapter 1 and 2 kind of lay the stage for the whole book. So it's kind of like a thunder stealer a little bit. You're going to know what's going to happen by the end. Um, but I like that this is where we're going to end this morning as kind of the intro to the book. We'll start in verse 14. But then I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. I will return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. She will give herself to me there as she did long ago when she was young, when I freed her from her captivity in Egypt. When that day comes, says the Lord, you will call me my husband instead of my master. Oh, Israel, I will wipe the many names of Baal from your lips and you will never mention them again. On that day, I will make a covenant with all the wild animals and the birds of the sky and the animals that scurry along the ground so that they will not harm you. I will remove all weapons of war from the land, all swords and bows, so you can live unafraid in peace and safety. I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as the Lord. In that day, I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the sky as it pleads for clouds, and the sky will answer the earth with rain. Then the earth will answer the thirsty cries of grain, the grapevines and olive trees, And they will turn and answer, Jezreel, God plants. At that time, I will plant a crop of Israelites and raise them for myself. I will show love to those I called not loved. And I will say to those I called not my people. I will say, now you are my people. And they will reply, you are our God. God's, God's ultimate plan is redemption. No matter how far away we have gone. Hosea's wife is in a bad spot. She has pursued other lovers. She's not really coming back willingly. Two of her three children were born to other men. And God says to Gomer, as he says to the people of Israel, I am going to win you back. Depending on the version that you read that verse 14 in, uh, there's all these different words that are used. Um, I think the English standard says, I'm going to allure her. 
Uh, like, like seduce her, like, like not seduce in a deceptive way, but like, like a man does with a woman when he is drawing her in for the first time, right? Like when, when he looks at her and he says, I want her to know how much I love her. And she responds not because she has to, but because she wants to. What I love about the end of chapter two here is we don't see that Israel is being forced back into this relationship with the Lord. We see that the Lord wins her over. Now, she doesn't deserve that, okay? If we can just be honest. She doesn't deserve someone to come to her and try to to allure her and draw her back in, make her feel loved and wonderful and accepted. She doesn't deserve that. Look at the way that she's behaved. But remember, God's behavior is always based on his goodness, not ours. And so he draws her back in because he wants to, because he loves her, because regardless of the garbage that she has done, it doesn't change the fact that he loves her and he loves her desperately. And so he puts it all away. He sets it all aside and he says, I'm going to capture your heart and draw you back to myself. And we see at the very end, he returns to the names of those children, right? These words that have marked the people of Israel. Jezreel, this valley that is full of death and destruction and that is ugly. He says, I'm going to plant there. I'm going to plant a vineyard. It's going to be new. New life is going to come out of that place. And when I told you that you were not loved, I'm going to tell you that you're loved. And to those that I said, not my people, I will say, you are my people. And they will say, you are our God. God's plan is always redemption. No matter what you have done, no matter how far away you have been, God's plan is always redemption. And so I, I love the book of Hosea I love the book of Hosea because of how poignant the analogy is. A man marrying a prostitute illustrating God's love for me. Like, that's pretty clear. And I can relate to that pretty strongly. Um, being wayward and, and pursuing other things and, and not being faithful to the Lord. I can relate to that idea. I'm guessing that you can also. And so I'm looking forward to these next two weeks as we look even further into the book of Hosea and we see what else it is that God has to say to us, his people, through this image of Hosea and his prostitute wife. This morning, as we walk away from here, what I hope will stick with you and what I have been praying will continue to rattle around in your brain is this idea of God's goodness. That whether I'm at my best or I'm at my worst, his goodness never changes. And his goodness to you never changes. That is hard for some of us to believe. But whether you are at your best today or your very worst, he loves you the same as he always has. He's not in love with some future version of you. He will not love you more when you stand perfect before him someday in heaven. He loves you just as much now as he will on that day. And if I could really start to believe that, and if you could really start to believe that, I mean, imagine what that would do to your day. Imagine how that would change the way that you think about yourself and the way that it would change the way that you interact with other people. Think about the pressure that it removes, 
you're not going to have a good day every day. You're going to screw up. And yet that doesn't change the fact that God is desperately in love with you. That he doesn't regret the fact that he saved you. He loves you. He loves you because he wants to. He loves you despite the fact that we run to other lovers. He loves you. So as, as we close, I was thinking this week, okay, so what, what's the challenge? What do we walk out of here to do? I, I hate, you know, like you finish a meeting and you're like, we just sat around and talked for an hour and nothing got accomplished. And what am I supposed to do after this meeting? What, what, what do we go from here and do? And I kind of felt like the, the Lord was saying, hey, dummy, did you read those two chapters at all? It's not about doing It's just about resting in him. And so I guess if you want marching orders for this afternoon or for this week, something to do as we walk out of here, I would just ask you to maybe spend time in the first couple of chapters of Hosea and to ask the Lord to really help you know and believe that his goodness to you is not dependent on you. It's dependent on him. That he's always, his plan is always redemption. Always. No matter what you've done, you are not too far gone. No matter how many times you have strayed, no matter how many times you have pursued that same sin over and over again, no matter how many times you've had to pray the same prayer over and over again, God is not weary of you. He hasn't run out of grace. He hasn't run out of forgiveness. He loves you simply because he wants to. Not because you have forced him to, simply because he wants to. That's my prayer for us this week, that we learn that more. That that can become the attitude of this place. That when people walk in here, they see that there's something different. Because we simply have that sort of grace for each other. Because we understand that the way that God loves us is based purely on him and not on us. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you. Um, I thank you for the way that you speak to us. Uh, I thank you for the way that you used Hosea in the lives of the Israelites. Um, for the way that you gave him a command that was such a strange thing to ask him to do to marry a prostitute and. Um, to have to deal with that, to, to deal with her, to deal with her, um, her adulterousness and the fact that uh, not all of your children belong to you and, and wh- how to make sense of all of those things. And yet, God, you chose to use this man and his adulterous wife to be one of the clearest pictures that I can imagine for the way that you love me, the way that you love us as your people that the way that you love us isn't dependent on us at all. It's not dependent on the way that I behave. It's not dependent on how many good things I've done this week or how many verses I've read in my Bible or how many minutes I have spent praying to you. None of those things earn your favor. And I know that, Lord, I should know that far better than I do. I have known you for a very long time and this isn't a new message. And yet I am very quick to forget God, I pray this week that you would help each of us to learn that lesson. Um, God, thanks that your Holy Spirit knows each of our hearts and our situations. 
so God, I pray that you would take this truth, the truth from Hosea chapter one and chapter two, and that you would allow it to settle into the hearts of these people here in just the way that they need it. That you would encourage people who need encouraged and that you would convict people that need convicted, that you would challenge us to think differently about ourselves and about you. God, help us to come back to you, those of us who have wandered, who have wandered and have felt embarrassed about how far we've gotten, embarrassed about the bad choices that we've made, embarrassed about the sin that we walk in and we think, oh, it's too late. I just can't, I can't. God, for those of us who are in that place, help us to experience your grace even this morning, the soft touch of your grace and your goodness to us. Thank you for what you're doing in this place. Thank you for the way that you never give up on us. Thank you for loving us so deeply. In Jesus' name.